Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Strap on your parachute, it's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzek and Mike Regan. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Katie Greifeld, a cross-asset reporter filling in for Sarah Ponzek, who's on a much-deserved vacation. No pressure, uh, Katie, but Sarah pretty much carries the show on her back, you know, so you, you better you better be good. Yeah, no, I'm a frequent listener. I've got big shoes to fill. Right. And the only rule is you have to laugh at my jokes or, or at least pretend to laugh. All right. How'd I do? That's uh, a little weak, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll work on it. Anyway, this week on the show, obviously government and central bank policies have once again became the main drivers of financial markets. Our guest this week will help us make sense of all of it. He has served in important economic positions under five different U.S. presidents. He's an expert on how policy and diplomacy and investments interact. And, Katie, he will hopefully help us sort out these crazy times in markets. And as always, we'll close out this episode with our tradition, which is the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. And remember, if you see something crazy in markets, give us a call on the Bloomberg Podcast hotline at 646-324-3490 and leave us a voicemail and maybe we'll play it on the next episode. Yeah, and Katie, as we were talking about this before, I think this week's guest has one of the most fascinating resumes I, I've ever read. Um, I was re- I was very impressed reading his Wikipedia page, firstly because he's got a Wikipedia page. That's that's sort of impressive in and of itself. But he's been in uh, government a long time. He was uh, had roles such as deputy U.S. trade representative with the rank of ambassador. He was a senior economic advisor to Henry Kissinger. He most recently uh, served in the Obama administration as undersecretary of state for economic growth energy and the environment. And uh, to top it all off, he was vice chairman of Goldman Sachs International for quite a long time. Uh, currently, he is a managing director at the wealth management firm of Tiedemann Advisors, and his name is Robert Hormatz. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Mike. Great to be with you and great to be with you, Katie. You know, Bob, I was uh, reading a recent piece you had. Oh, and Katie, Bob also, with all that going on, he manages to get more bylines in the financial press than I do, I think, somehow. I, I, very impressive. But he, Bob, you had a, a recent piece in Barron's talking about, obviously, the federal deficit is just ballooning. Uh, it's going to get bigger and bigger for the foreseeable future as the government sort of counteracts the economic damage from the pandemic. 
Um, and you write about sort of, you know, the, the risks of sort of political extremism on both sides that could come as a result of, you know, the, the nation just kind of trying to wrap its head around how we can possibly solve this deficit issue. But one thing I want to ask in regards to that is uh, one of those sort of fringe economic ideas that I feel like is going more and more mainstream uh, these days is the idea of uh, modern monetary theory. Uh, Stephanie Kelton, who is a, a columnist for Bloomberg, has a book out that's that's really hot called The Deficit Myth. You know, and, you know, for listeners who are unfamiliar, there's it, it, it's kind of a complex thing to discuss uh, MMT, but the the gist of it, as that book title suggests, is perhaps we've been too afraid of, of deficit spending and that when you're a sovereign country like the U.S. that issues its own currency, it's not as big of a deal as deficit hawks would uh, claim it is. Um, if you issue your own currency, theoretically, you can never default on your debt. I'm just curious, given your vast experience in the government and, and thinking about the deficit, thinking about the global economies, what is your take on modern monetary theory uh, these days as we are faced with this unprecedented deficit situation? Well, now we have a particularly unusual set of circumstances whereby we're in the midst of forced or involuntary utilization of modern monetary theory. That is to say, the federal government is issuing and will continue to issue trillions of dollars worth of bonds, and the market is by and large buying them up at a very low interest rate. And the Fed, uh, if the market is not going to do it, the Fed has demonstrated its desire and its willingness to buy those assets up and keep interest rates extremely low. This is not unheard of in the United States. This was done during World War II, where the Fed guaranteed the treasury that it would buy treasury bonds at a very low rate to keep interest rates low, to keep the debt servicing costs of the, uh, of the government low. So theoretically, this can last a very long time, as long as the treasury is making these big bond issues a regular occurrence, as it appears to be, although now it's not uh, decided what the, the next step is, but there'll be some additional spending, large additional spending, it's necessary. And the Fed, Jay Powell has said, he is going to, in effect, continue to keep rates low. But he said also something we should be aware of, the Fed can't do it all. The Fed cannot do this indefinitely, but what does indefinite mean? Uh, how long can this occur? What are the end results of this at some point? If trees don't grow to the sky, what could disrupt the markets and what could cause either the Treasury to run into trouble with its issues or the Fed to feel uncomfortable in underwriting those issues uh, for the indefinite future? We don't know that. This is all terra incognito. Well, I do want to jump in and ask, even though you just said we don't know, but what do you think is the breaking point? You know, as the U.S. just continues to sell more and more debt, the budget deficit is just ballooning. At what point does that become a problem and might cause that disruption you touch on? Well, I think one thing we have to bear in mind is that foreigners are major players in the debt market here. The Fed is a bigger player and obviously American financial institutions are bigger players, but foreigners are 
still buying debt issued by the treasury in part because they see other parts of the world less stable than the US. With all of our problems that we have here, we're probably the most reliable creditor, well, certainly the most reliable creditor in the world uh, by, by all traditional standards. The problem would occur if there are doubts about the Fed the, and the, particularly doubts about the Treasury repaying uh, the debt of the United States. For instance, there is some discussion in the United States uh, Congress and, and in Washington in general about maybe the U.S. will decide it doesn't want to uh, pay interest on some of the debt that it owes China. No one has actually threatened this, but it's sort of part of the Washington rumor mill. That would be the kind of thing that would be highly disruptive and could really undermine this scenario because the key to the American credit market, all the way back to Alexander Hamilton, is the full faith and credit of the United States is behind the bonds issued by the United States. And that is critically important. The second is that if rates stay low and inflation starts going up, then people who are holding dollar assets, low yielding dollar assets, find that they're losing more and more in real terms every year. And that could be a problem. And third, the question of the dollar itself. And that is if, if the dollar, which has been relatively strong, if the dollar weakens further, then uh, other countries like the, the Europeans will be in a better position to, if depending on what their own rates are, to attract some of the money that's now currently going into the dollar. You know, and Bob, we have seen some weakening in the dollar uh, this year. I mean, nothing too dramatic yet, but uh, last time I checked, the, some of the broad indexes were down near the, the lowest in a, in a couple of years. Is that the beginning of that, do you think? And is that, you know, for an investor to sort of wrap their heads around all of these issues, is that sort of the main, where the main focus should be is what role the dollar plays in the global economy in sort of this new world we have of, of a little bit of political isolationism um, and these massive deficits? I mean, if you're an investor, are you mainly just focused on the risks to the dollar at this point? I think you're focus to a degree on the risk to the dollar, probably that's not the main thing you're focused on. You're focused on essentially interest rates. Uh, you're focused on the credibility of the federal government's commitment to repay its debt. But I do think the dollar, if you're abroad, and even if you're an American, um, is important. In part, if you're abroad and you're buying dollar-denominated assets, and you're seeing the dollar weakening, you're, you're losing money. And particularly if you're buying fixed income assets where you're getting no interest practically, you're really losing money. You're certainly losing it in, in real terms. That's a, a factor. The second thing we have to bear in mind is that low interest rates are not free in the sense that there are a lot of Americans, particularly retirees, uh, older Americans who don't like to buy equities because they consider them risky. They want secure assets. They want a secure flow of income. And uh, you know that is uh, a, a problem for them because if they're holding a lot of treasuries, they're holding secure assets for sure, but they're losing year after year after year 
if the treasury is paying 20 basis points or 30 basis points and the inflation rate is two or two and a half percent or whatever it will turn out to be. So it's really a, a huge burden on savers who want secure flows of income but want to avoid risk. business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Bob, one of the, the more fascinating parts of your career uh, was sort of helping to negotiate diplomacy with China way back in the, the Nixon uh, administration. I'm curious just your sort of overall thoughts of the U.S.-China relationship right now. Obviously, it's seen better days. It's deteriorating. Is this friction between these two countries here to stay, regardless of who the next president is? And how do you sort of see it all uh, shaping up in terms of, you know, geopolitics for one thing, but also just what the economic and market implications will be, say, in the next decade between the U.S. and China? Relations between the U.S. and China are more fraught, more tense, more acrimonious than I have seen in all the time I've been working on China. And I started, as you mentioned, in the early 1970s with Henry Kissinger. And there have been a lot of issues between the United States and China. But the relationship really is deteriorating and deteriorating badly. It was beginning to deteriorate even before COVID. It was beginning to deteriorate because of differences over trade, differences over intellectual property, differences over who would be the dominant player in global technology. All these things were important in the relationship. And China now is a country that sees the U.S. preoccupied with very difficult domestic issues and believes that this is an opportunity for it to expand its role internationally, which it is doing, not just through the Belt and Road Initiative, but trying to write some of the rules or a lot of the rules for global trade, for global technology, et cetera. The, the problem for China, though, is that it has a lot of domestic issues. And uh, there's issues relating to joblessness. That's a problem. There are a lot of people who are big borrowers in China. Now they're unable to pay their debts. So China is not immune to economic difficulties. The, the debt situation there is quite substantial. And it now uh, has to rely more and more, and President Xi Jinping has made this point, rely more and more on its own economy. It can't rely as much on the United States. So it has to bolster its own economy domestically, and it has to develop relationships with other markets Southeast Asia, Europe, and, and other markets as well. So it's becoming more and more, I wouldn't say detached from the United States, but it's coming to rely less and less on the American market. And also it's worried that the United States at some point for political or other reasons will cut off Chinese access to certain important technologies that Chinese companies need China relies very heavily, for instance, on American semiconductors. And there's also this concern that 
the United States will interfere with the capital market relationship with the financial relationship between the United States and China. So China is beginning to realize that it is vulnerable to what the United States has been doing and what the United States is threatening or implying that it might do, which could be very disruptive to the Chinese economy. I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, we mentioned earlier in the pod that there's been some talk about, you know, perhaps Chinese companies wouldn't be able to list on U.S. exchanges. I mean, when you sort of think about that happening and the implications of that, do you view that as a, a real threat, something that could happen that we could see in the next, you know, couple months or years? Or do you think still a lot of the back and forth between the U.S. and China is posturing? Well, I think so far it's posturing. I, I, I do think there are people who, in the financial markets, who don't like the idea of delisting Chinese assets in the American equities markets. So the issue is what kind of reporting requirements the U.S. is going to impose on China. Will China comply with those? Because partly it's about that as well, not just about the political threat, but about certain regulatory issues. Uh, but these have existed in the past, and the U.S. government has sort of overlooked them. Now that's becoming a more serious issue. I do think it would be a problem in part for China because it does get the broad benefits of being able to list in New York, but it also has other markets where it can list. It can list in Hong Kong, for instance. It can list in Shanghai. It can list in Beijing. It can list in London. So the Chinese would regard this as a disruptive act by the United States, but they could uh, find alternatives if, if they had to, but it would be considered a very bad political signal. Threatening the repayment of uh, debt owed to China, that is a wholly different issue, and that would be very disruptive to the Chinese who expect to get paid when they invest in American assets. But other countries, will then say, well, if the U.S. does this to China, maybe it'll do it to us for other political reasons or exert leverage. So I think you'd see a highly disruptive uh, reaction in the U.S. financial markets and certainly in the dollar. So, Bob, if the next president, uh, whoever it is, were able to lure you back into the Beltway uh, to, to give him some advice on this issue, uh, what, what's your advice on how to handle China going forward? I think there are various issues where the United States should take a, uh, a tough negotiating position. I've negotiated with the Chinese on a number of technology and related issues, and uh, it's possible to take tough positions vis-a-vis -vis China without being confrontational toward China. So you have to find the right balance. Um, and you, one can say, well, we haven't gotten as much as we would like to in terms of the kind of changes that we've been asking the Chinese or negotiating for. But we also have to come to the understanding in, in our policy framework, the way we set up our relations with China, that we're going to need China for a variety of reasons. For instance, if there is a major global financial crisis as a result of this pandemic, as a result of all the debt that has been accumulated by a great many countries, not just the US and China, but many emerging economies, China was critical in 2008 to resolving the financial problems of that period of time. Second, we also have to bear in mind that Chinese and American scientists are working very closely and companies are working very closely on trying to find 
various kinds of immunization technologies, therapies, drugs to deal with COVID. And we do not want to sever those relationships with American and Chinese scientists. We can learn from them and they can learn from us. They have some very, very good scientists working on vaccines. They have a wholly different testing regime from the United States. We have a, we have a different, a, a more rigorous testing regime or trials than the Chinese do, or at least it's different. They need to be seen in Washington as part of dealing with the COVID issue through various vaccines and various therapies and to deal with the post-COVID financial issues that we're clearly going to face. So, Bob, I actually wanted to go back to the dollar. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. And within that, one of my favorite things to talk about is the reserve status of the dollar. And hearing you talk about, you know, how much debt we're issuing, the importance of foreigners in buying that debt, you know, how important is the reserve status of the dollar to the U.S., do you think? And do you think there's any risk that the dollar could lose some of that reserve status going forward from here? At the moment, I think the dollar is still pretty secure as a reserve currency, as the major global transaction currency, as the major global store of value. Most global trade, even trade between China and other countries, is denominated in dollars. Oil trade is denominated in dollars. So for the moment, I think the role of the dollar is quite secure. On the other hand, it's not a God-given right for the United States to have the world's reserve currency. And what you're going to get over a period of time are countries that will be exploring digital currencies, that will be exploring other kinds of, of assets, reserve assets, that will be using their own currencies like the EU uh, and the Euro. The Chinese want the RMB, its currency, the Yuan, to play a greater reserve role and uh, the, the U.S. has to recognize that everyone now does trust the U.S. dollar as the major reserve currency in the world. But what we don't want to do is overdo the dollar as a, a way of imposing sanctions on other countries, which we often do. We don't want to um, cause anyone to doubt the ability of the United States to meet its obligations. We want to make sure that we behave responsibly when it comes to the management of the dollar. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. The flip side of the coin, Bob, so to speak, of a weak dollar is obviously uh, somewhat of a, a tailwind for the U.S. equity market uh, and for gold, obviously, has been been roaring this year, especially with equities um, now uh, S&P flirting with another record high uh, territory this week. 
How much are equity markets, in your opinion, uh, pricing in sort of the, the best possible outcome to the virus? You know, is, it seems like there's a lot of optimism about a vaccine coming perhaps in the fall or by the end of the year. Um, how much risk do you, do you see to equities at this type of lofty valuation, given, um, you know, there is some potential risk with how well the, the vaccine plays out in the near future, what the economy looks like in the fall as we go back to school in the U.S. and and the virus potentially could flare up again. How do you see it all playing out for the rest of the year? Well, I do think for the rest of the year, uh, the, the markets are more and more going to be focused on the virus and on the, the treatments for the virus or a vaccine. We have a lot of experience in developing vaccines. And the one thing we know about vaccines is they take a long time to develop. Now, it's certainly true that a lot of big companies are putting all the ammunition, all the brain power, all the capacity they can into developing vaccines. But you have to test them, you have to go through trials. You have the trials are quite have to be quite extensive because you're actually giving the vaccine to well people. So you don't want to make them sick by giving them the vaccine. It's very optimistic to think that we're going to get a vaccine as quickly as a lot of people think. Now, there are a lot of announcements about candidate vaccines. There's something like 26 candidate vaccines. Of those, just as a matter of, of interest, China is engaged in nine of them. So it shows you that China is playing a role. There are other countries, Britain, Oxford University, Israel, Germany, even Russia. The role of science, the role of medicine uh, in dealing with COVID has actually led to uh, a lot of progress and a lot of lives have been saved. And we're some of our very best people. We looked at science and scientists after World War II as heroes of the war and developing new weapons and heroes of the space age. We took people from all over the world and they helped us to build up our capability in the military area after World War II. You know, the rocket program, nuclear program, et cetera. We have to look now at our security and say, we can't just do this on our own. We have to get the best and the brightest here, but also open up to the best and the brightest from the rest of the world. The scientists who come from or work with people all over the world. That the de new definition of security is that it's military, but it's military plus health and military plus the environment. And we're gonna to need to work with our own best and brightest and give more of a, uh, respect to scientists and others, but also interact with those from other countries who have a lot to offer also. I hear you, Bob. I'm all for working with the best and the brightest, but now, Bob, it's time to work with the craziest things, I think, we've seen in markets. This is our our gimmick to, to close the show every week. A lot of people love it. It's the craziest thing we've seen in markets. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Katie, I want to start with you. What's the craziest thing you saw in markets this week? So it's not in markets, but it's about markets. So I think it counts. Um, I found on Twitter uh, a screenshot from the subreddit Data is beautiful. It's a subreddit on reddit.com. And uh, user LL Moonjay makes art out of stock charts. And this week he made this beautiful chart of 
Ford's stock price going back the past year, he took that chart, It I, obviously it dipped in March and then it's rebounded a little bit, but it kind of looks like a cliff and he made this beautiful mountain scene and actually has a little Ford truck in it as well. And I'm just in awe of it. I can't stop like switching between the picture and then the actual chart. So I would head to that subreddit and look at it because it is beautiful. All right. Well, well, hopefully he pay, paid the appropriate data license for that for that data for that chart. <laughs> How about you, Bob? Have you seen anything crazy recently in markets? Originally, when the when gold started shooting up, I thought that was crazy. We're not going to have any inflation anytime soon. I don't think. Um, why was gold shooting up? But now, uh, I don't think that's so crazy anymore because it's really in a in a way a bet against the dollar. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier. If you don't want to hold another foreign currency, but you don't want to hold the dollar because the dollar is depreciating, then gold is a, a good asset. It's a good hedge against a, a weaker dollar. So what I thought was crazy, I'm not a gold bug, but <laughs> what I thought was crazy a little while ago and the gold shooting up as much as it did, I now regard and um, I think others do as well, uh, regard gold as a, sing a signal of concern about the dollar continuing to depreciate. And it's a signal that we, as a country, and we in Washington have to uh, bear in mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amazing run in gold uh, this year. And as you said, I guess not too surprising given the circumstances, but still pretty spectacular. Yeah. Okay, I will. Uh, I'll give you mine now. Uh, and Katie, you and I, as reporters and journalists in financial markets, we spend a lot of time writing about the way people like Bob and professional investors sort of come up with their investment ideas. All the heavy-duty analysis and number crunching involved. But the New York Post this week's brings us another way to go about it. And you know what it is? You just hire a psychic. Hire a psychic who will read tarot cards. And apparently there is a woman named Hey June who she used to work at JP Morgan as a data uh, analyst, uh, a couple other roles, a strategist. And on the side, she was given tarot card readings to colleagues and friends. Uh, and, sh and she decided, you know what, there's so much demand for this. I'm just going to do this full time. And apparently, according to the New York Post, she has clients in, in the hedge fund world in the big tech world and she gives literally gives tarot card readings in the boardroom. Uh, I'll give you one quote from her. She said, I've had many instances where I've told traders be more open-minded today because I pulled a Capricorn card, which means big business or a chariot card, which means getting lucky. Then they put in a trade that they normally wouldn't do and they make bank. So I don't know, Bob, I don't know. Are you going to be replaced by a tarot card reader? Do you think is there a risk of that? I think the, the, it's unlikely. I mean, the one thing, the, the one thing uh, I can say as we conclude here is that we at Tiedemann have a great team of people who make judgments on the basis of of facts, make judgments on the basis of thoughtful analysis, make judgments on the knowledge of what's going on in our own country and the world and various markets and, and do very thoughtful research. The one thing we don't use is tarot cards. <laughs> that's I'm guessing that's probably a good thing. I think that's it for the uh, this week's episode. Bob, we can't thank you enough. Very 
illuminating and educational uh, discussion. And I hope someday uh, we can have you back to talk more. I would love to. I want to thank you for inviting me to participate. Mike and Katie, you have been great, great questions. Um, I hope I do have a chance to see you both again soon. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can follow us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Follow Sarah at Sarah Ponzak. And follow Katie Greifeld at Kay Greifeld. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce.